The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <coughs> good morning, everyone. And I have just heard it is the Sri Lankan Southeast Asian New Year. Is that right? Today? Yeah. So Happy New Year, everyone. Anyone who celebrates this New Year? Happy New Year. <laughs> the best way to celebrate the New Year is to do this kind of thing, yeah? Listen to the suttas, do some meditation, uh, and uh, just uh, enjoy these things in a wholesome way. So, uh, I was told by Ajahn Nisarana how to say this in Sinhala, but I'm not even going to try because it's <laughs> too difficult. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, carry on where we uh, uh, left off yesterday. So we are going through the various kind of ways of giving up the defilements. Yeah, yesterday we were looking at uh, how to give it up by using things and using things in the correct way. Yeah. And uh, this means using everything, yeah, all our requisites, all our possessions uh, in a way that is suitable and skillful and kind of helps us to uh, grow in spiritual qualities. Uh. And uh, I have just, uh, you know, sometimes I, I just kind of grab some random suttas uh, just to sort of find something which is uh, kind of uh, isn't a bit different and uh, might still be interesting and this little passage that comes next this is from uh, a uh, passage in the Vinaya Pitaka which you may not have heard much from before because this is mostly about the monastic rules and the monastic um, uh, monastic um, procedures yeah, how, how you function as a monastic community and this one here is taken from, I think I actually got it wrong there, it's not the Mahakandaka, it's some other Kandaka. Uh, anyway, it is uh, where the King Bimbisara, yeah, King Bimbisara, one of the great kings of ancient India, who lived at the time of the Buddha, uh, he was the king of the Magadan uh, country, which later on became the great empire of Ashoka, a couple of hundred years after the Buddha. And he was one of the very early kings of this country. Yeah, And it's fascinating. You see the exact same name, Magadha is found in the suttas, uh, this exact same name that is used of the empire of Ashoka later on. Uh, the capital of Magadha was, uh, uh, initially it was Rajagaha, later it became Pataliputra, which is now Patna in India. So when you travel there you come to the uh, very center of this large empire, largest empire India has ever had, larger than India is today. So this is the little story of where King Bimbisara, he gives a monastery yeah, to the Sangha. This is how they would do things in those days. They would kind of offer the land and offer the monastery. Here you are. yeah, And uh, how he reflects, you know, how to find a suitable place for the monastic Sangha to stay. And this is that little passage I've just taken out there from the Vinaya Pitaka. I have actually translated the entire Vinaya Pitaka into English myself over a number of years. It's pretty much finished now. Going to be published fairly soon, I think. Well, soon, you know, soonish. <laughs> soon is always a dangerous word. Uh, like, uh, you know, for some people, 10 lifetimes is soon. Uh, so it uh, just depends. Uh, <laughs> it's always it's interesting, one of those things that you find in the suit, as you find that someone practices really well, uh, and in no long time they become an arahant. Yeah, and you think, wow, in those days they had really powerful spiritual qualities. Uh, and then the commentary tells you that in no long time, well, it means about 
30 years, maybe 40 years, something like that. That's no long time. Eh? So <laughs> it's all, all very relative what you mean by this. For some people, no long time is 10 lifetimes. Eh? So anyway, so what does it say? And this is what happens. Yeah, The King Bimbisara has already met the Buddha. This is uh, soon after the Buddha has reached his awakening. Eh? And then he invites the Buddha for the meal. And then while the Buddha is uh, kind of having his meal, yeah, the king, Bimbisara, he thinks. Uh, king Bimbisara thought, page 14 on this in the, in the uh, suttas here. Where will the Buddha stay that's neither too far from the village nor too close? Uh, that has good access roads. Uh, that's easily accessible for people who seek him. Uh, that has few people during the day and is quiet at night. That's free from chatter, offers solitude, uh, that's away from human habitation and suitable for seclusion. Uh, so do you approve of my translation? Is it okay? <laughs> if, you, if you find any faults, let me know so I can correct those faults. Uh, <laughs> It's always okay. So this is the ideal monastery, yeah. That the, uh, he thinks, and of course, because it is in the Vinaya in the suttas, it means that uh, uh, this is the ideal that was accepted by the monastics and by the Buddhist community. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be included. Huh? Yeah, and you will see some of these nice qualities here. Yeah, we can see if Newbury Monastery matches up to these qualities. Uh. <laughs> Neither too far from the village. What what is the village? Is the village is that Melbourne? Huh? The village? Yeah, yeah. The village of Melbourne. <laughs> Not too far from the maybe maybe Melbourne is the wrong uh, measuring measuring stick here. But anyway, no too close. In those days, villages were very clearly defined. It would be a fairly small area. It would have a kind of clear boundary. People lived kind of, these days, kind of cities, they kind of just go on forever and they kind of just end in this kind of slow dilution uh, of houses kind of going on. There's no clear boundaries anymore like they had in those days. It's a bit more tricky now to get these kind of qualities. Uh, yeah, so and why should it not be too far away? Well, the idea is to go for arms, yeah? You want to be able to go and access, go to the city to uh, get arms. You want the people in the city to get access to the monastery. That's what you see in those days. The lay people will come into the monastery on the uposita. Huh? Yeah, they will do some meditation together. They will uh, hear the Dhamma talk. Yeah, this was common, commonly happened in the monastery in those days. Uh, and uh, this is why you want to have easy access uh, not too far, not too close. Uh, yeah, just that middle road, maybe a kilometer away from the village or something like that. Uh, good access roads, yeah, so it's easy to come. Uh, people can come and seek spiritual guidance. Yeah, this is the kind of the point of the monastery, one of the main reasons. Uh, people to get access, uh, get inspired by these teachings. Uh, yeah, go back home and think, yay, I'm going to practice. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to live well. Uh, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to speak right. I'm going to think right thoughts even. Uh, yeah, and it's a uh, few people during the day. Yeah, so it's quiet. Uh, Newbury doesn't have many people doing that. Got a few kangaroos, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, and um, quiet at night, of course. Uh, so you can, uh, you know, you can meditate at night time, uh, and free from chatter and offers solitude. One of those important things uh, that uh, solitude. One of the uh, core things of Buddhist practice if you want to take it all the way to the end of path. That solitude is important because that's where the deep meditation happens. Uh, 
And that's why people go on retreats, yeah, to get away from their ordinary life. That's why they become monastics often. A good monastery will have good uh, potential possibilities for retreat, uh, so for solitude, just uh, hanging out in your own little cootie. Yeah. It is away from human habitation and suitable for seclusion. Yeah. That gives an idea of the ideal monastery. Yeah. And it gives you the kind of the... Um, uh, the, the, the uh, you know when you build up places like Newbury uh, gives you an idea whether it is right or not, and I think Newbury is pretty much fulfills these qualities. Yeah, and uh, you may wonder what about city monastery? It's very common these days to have city monasteries, uh, and uh, you know there's nothing wrong really with city monasteries. Uh, they're, they're okay in their own way, but they're not the ideal monastery for the practice of the path. Uh, yeah, if you really want to get into the practice, you want to have a forest monastery. Uh, and you see that around the world. If you travel to Sri Lanka or Burma or Thailand or now also Australia, the best monasteries, the ones that are really supported, where you find real practice, is almost always the forest monasteries. Uh, there are. Sometimes you find really good city monks and nuns as well. You know, we shouldn't be too kind of uh, absolute about this, but generally speaking, that's the case. Uh, and that's the way it's been. You can see here, since the time of the Buddha, yeah, this has been the ideal. Uh, and then it occurred to the king, my bamboo grove. This is the Veluvana, yeah, very famous monastery here in Rajagaha. My bamboo grove park has my bamboo grove park has all these qualities. Let me give the park to the Sangha and the monks headed by the Buddha. The king then took hold of a golden ceremonial vessel and dedicated the park to the Buddha, saying, I give this park, the bamboo grove, to the Sangha monks headed by the Buddha. The Buddha accepted the park. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> and this is this is the golden ceremonial vessel, yeah. I, have you got these vessels around here that you pour the water? Got those? Yeah, you have? Yeah, okay. You, you know, even today we use those vessels, yeah? You have a vessel, you pour water from one vessel into another one, and sometimes they are made in such a way that it flows over from a small vessel into a larger one, yeah? So this goes back to the time of the Buddha. Yeah, you can see it right there. Kind of interesting when you read the suttas and you can see so many of the things we do in the present day. Uh, they actually have the root in these texts. Yeah, don't point your feet towards the Buddha. That's actually in there as well, you know, these kind of things. Uh, yeah, and uh, so um, there you are. So just a little extract for you. Yeah, just uh, I, I don't want to kind of talk about non-self all the time because it's just, sometimes it's just too heavy. So this little niceties is also is also useful. Huh? So then uh, let's go on to the next one. Huh? Uh, this is called the uh, Sevitabha Asevitabha Sutta, Majjhimarika 114. Huh? And it has a long list of various things uh, yeah, in the world. Uh, and how these things are to be used and not to be used. Uh, and that's why it fits under the defilements to be given up by using him. So the Buddha says, he's talking to Venerable Sariputta, Sariputta, robes are of two kinds, I say, to be used and not to be used. So it was said by the Buddha, the Blessed One, and with reference to what was this said? Venerable Sir, such robes as cause unwholesome qualities to increase, and wholesome qualities to diminish in one who uses them should not be used. But such robes as cause unwholesome qualities to diminish and wholesome qualities to increase in one who uses them, 
they should be used. Yeah? Very simple idea. And this is an idea that we can use in everything in our lives. Yeah, as a as a monastic, do I use these robes because they are uh, nice qualities or they are really, you know, special or something, or do I just use them for the purpose they have? Uh, and sometimes you can get it wrong the other way around. You can, you know, say oh, I'm going to use a really ascetic robe, uh, like one with lots of patches. Uh, and I used to have one of those when I was a young monk, and Ajahnisayana would probably remember that. Uh, and uh, sometimes that can go too far as well. Uh, yeah, you want to kind of show off how incredibly many patches you have. Uh, I have to admit that was a pretty cool robe, actually. Uh, patches everywhere. There was nothing left of the original cloth. Uh, I traveled through the international airports looking like a Christmas tree. Yeah, I was just, uh, whoa. <laughs> and it was quite nice in a sense, yeah, because you, uh, in one way it was nice. But sometimes you can take it too far because that can become a kind of a, it's, wow, it's kind of become a, you know, you get attached to that idea as well. Uh, so it's, so find something which you don't really attach to, which doesn't matter, which is kind of neutral. That's the idea. It doesn't make you conceited uh, in any way. It just uh, use it for the right purpose. Then it is right. Uh, and this is the thing with everything in the monastic life, and I would say in lay life as well. Uh, using things in the right way, uh, so that you don't kind of uh, think about them in the wrong way. Uh. Yeah, you don't get attached to them, you're not conceited, uh, you don't do it to to make yourself um, you know a better person uh, or whatever uh, and then uh, you are on the right track uh. so you can see the sutta then carries on it was reference to this that the blessed one said sariputta robes are of two kinds i say to be used and not to be used alms food is of two kinds i say resting places like uh, huts yeah or the rooms we have here or whatever really in life uh, are of two kinds everything is of two kinds uh, Everything in Buddhism should be measured according to one very simple rule of thumb. And that is, does it increase your good qualities and diminish the bad ones? If that is what hap is happening, you are on the right track. Whether that is your what you use, whether it is your meditation practice, whether it's how you deal with people in ordinary life, everything can be measured according to that rule of thumb. Why? Because that's the whole point of the spiritual path, is to move towards purification yeah the noble eightfold path uh, as i often like to say that is the real visuddhi magga the visuddhi magga is not that that thick book is called visuddhi magga but the real visuddhi magga is really the noble eightfold path visuddhi magga means the path of purity for those of you who don't know it is one of the most famous works on meditation a commentarial work on meditation written by the uh, very famous monk called Buddha Gosa back in about the 5th century AD yeah. and uh, that's called the path of purification but really the Noble Eightfold Path is the path of purification. Uh, why? Because when you look at that path it is one stage of purification after the other. Uh, once you have right view, once you understand the necessity of purification you start off with the coarser things. You practice the sila, then you practice the purification of the mind through right effort. Uh, then you do the final purification through right mindfulness uh, and you reach the samadhi states. If you look at that path, it's all about purifying yourself of qualities that are unhelpful, unskillful, unwholesome. Get in the way of clarity, get in the way of peace, get in the way of insight. Uh, yeah, That's what it is really all about. Uh, so everything should be measured from that yardstick yardstick meter stick i don't know whatever <laughs> so maybe we can keep yard in this context so um 
Yeah, so that is the uh, that is kind of the point because that is what is meaningful. That's what the that's what we're here. That's what this is all about. So if you are fulfilling the purpose of the spiritual path, then you are doing the right thing. It's as simple as that. Everything be measured according to that. Very useful thing to remember. I was always. Uh, um, struck by that saying when I read the suttas. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I very fortunate at Bodhinyana Monastery we have a, someone like Ajahn Brahm to teach us. It's a marvelous thing to have. But uh, still, you know, you read the suttas, you pick up things that you don't hear from Ajahn Brahm because he has a certain focus. The suttas may tell you new things. And this was one of the things that really opened my eyes. Wow, that's really cool. That's really incredibly useful. So use things in the right way here. Don't uh, don't allow yourself to be sidetracked by the things of the world. Okay, so that is the uh, defilements to be abandoned through uh, using. Yeah, in other words, using appropriately. Well, that is the third kind of defilements. Now we move on to the fourth one. We're going really fast now. So uh, the next one is the defilements given up by enduring. Yeah, it's interesting. We often talk about the Buddhist path is supposed to be a happy one, uh, supposed to enjoy yourself. Uh, and now the Buddha comes up with enduring. What is this all about? We don't, we don't really want to endure too much. Yeah? We just want to enjoy. But uh, the reality of life is that sometimes you just have to endure. Yeah? There's no choice. So this is what this is about. So defilements given up by enduring. What are the defilements that should be given up by enduring? Take a mendicant who, reflecting properly, endures cold, heat, hunger, and thirst. They endure the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and creeping, creepy crawlies. Creepy crawlies is a much better translation, I reckon. Creepy crawlies uh, of all kinds. Uh, um, they endure rude and unwelcome speech, uh, and they put up with physical pain, sharp, severe, acute, unpleasant, disagreeable, and life-threatening. Yeah. For the distressing and feverish defilements that might arise in someone who lives without enduring, uh, these things do not arise when they are endured. These are called the defilements that should be given up by enduring. Yeah. So again, you will notice it starts off by reflecting properly. Yeah, it always comes back to ha reflecting wisely about things. Patisanka yoniso. Yoniso really has this uh, idea of being wise about things, going to the source, going to the core of things. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the idea, going to the root, where things are coming from, what the real problem is. Uh, so reflection here throughout and of course, this uh, Patisanka Yoniso is directly related to the way the Sutta started out, talking about Yoniso Manasikara, wise attention. Yeah, so every time you reflect wisely, that reflection comes from the idea of wise attention. You attend wisely. So all throughout. Uh, so even when you endure, you have to endure wisely. And part of that is to know when to endure and when to try to change your circumstances. Yeah. I, you, we have just noticed the way by using properly, and the idea of using properly is that you use the robes to, you know, your clothes, whatever it is, not to be cold, to avoid the mosquitoes and things, yeah? So you try to avoid these things. We don't endure if we don't have to. So we always try to kind of avoid, if we can, 
Yeah, at least initially, but sometimes you just can't. Uh, sometimes you haven't got enough clothes with you. You have to be a bit cold, or the sun is just too hot. You can only take off so many clothes uh, before it becomes indecent, and then you have to stop. Uh, so you, you know, so you um, there's, sometimes you just have to endure. Uh, or there's a mosquito in your room. Uh, sometimes you can't get it out. You tell the mosquito to get out, but sometimes the mosquito doesn't listen to you. Uh, <laughs> the mosquito is thirsty. They want blood. They don't want to kind of, you know, get out. And so sometimes you just have to endure. Uh, actually, that's one of the most difficult things to endure, isn't it? The, most, the sound of a mosquito in your room when you're trying to fall asleep. That is a really hard one. Uh, but uh, after a while, you deal with that too. Uh, you say, okay, mosquito, if you want to bite me, you know, go for it. Uh, as long pr- promise me not to have malaria, otherwise I'll... We are, we are fortunate here in Australia, we don't have much malaria, at least not in the southern parts, so that's, that's good. So sometimes there's no choice. So, uh, and it's uh, interesting, I, you know, sometimes I deal with people who uh, kind of write scholarly articles about the Dhamma, and they say that, some, they say that well, sometimes... Uh, the Dhamma is not consistent because on a case sometimes it says you should endure at other times you should be comfortable. Uh, what is it? Uh, but life is like that. Life is not consistent. Uh, yeah, it depends on the situation whether you are going to be absolutely comfortable. Pali word for comfort is pasu. You have that in Sinhala? Pasu? No? Is that, is that just a, a Pali word? Uh, pasu. No, okay, maybe a Pali word. Uh, yeah. I always think Sinhala has every every word in the Pali canon exists in Sinhala, but that's not quite the case. So. Pasu. Ah, okay, so there you are. So same same word. Okay, there you are. Okay, so just add an A in in, in the middle there. Yeah. So uh, it means kind of it really means deep meditation. Yeah, that's when you really are pahasu pasu. Yeah, when you are meditating, you're really relaxed. That's the real comfort. So uh, there is, but life changes, uh, and life is never consistent. Uh, sometimes you have, are really pasu, at other times it is more that you have to endure. Uh. So this is the first thing, yeah. And then, but then comes the interesting things, uh, and this is kind of, in one some ways perhaps more difficult to endure. Uh, and these are the rude and unwelcome speech, yeah. And this is so important because there are things in the world we cannot change. The sun, you cannot sometimes change the mosquitoes. Uh, but you cannot change the speech of people either very often. Uh, yeah, people are in your daily life, you will, almost every day we're going to hear something that we don't really enjoy, to, we don't really want to hear. Uh, people are, you know, and, and the reason is not because something has gone wrong. Uh, the reason is not because we're hanging out with the wrong people. Uh, it's just that that is the world. The world is like that. Other people are upset. They had an argument in the morning with their spouse, and then the rest of the day they feel grumpy, and then kind of whenever they open their mouth, that grumpiness comes out in their words. Uh, and so the, the world is just such that, uh, you know, bad words come out. Uh, and this is kind of the critical thing. If you're going to be able to live you have to learn to endure these words otherwise you're always going to get upset if someone says something bad to you but you have to remember that there's got nothing to do with you if someone else says something bad it's not because you have done something wrong you are not responsible for other people's mood and for other people's bad speech it's not your responsibility sometimes we take responsibility for other people's emotions yeah and we think it's our fault, but not, not, you can't really do that. You can never really be responsible for other people's emotions. If someone else is angry, it is their problem. Uh, it is not really your problem. Uh. So, uh, which someone just mentioned the other day about they always wanted to please people. Uh, yeah, 
And this is this idea that we are perhaps responsible for other people's emotions, uh, but we are not. Uh, and so you learn that uh, bad speech is a part of the world. Uh, bad speech is the way the world functions. Uh, bad speech is the conditioning of a particular person at a particular time. Uh, and uh, when you happen to be in their presence, you know, you have to, you have to hear these things. Uh, and uh, once you get that, uh, it's got nothing to do with you. It has to do everything to do with the other person. Uh, at that moment, you can let go, uh, and you can turn the thing around, and you can have compassion, uh, rather than feeling sorry for yourself, uh, or feeling that it is your fault. Uh. It's, quite, it's very liberating, right, when you do that, uh, because you're no longer in the clutches of anger, uh, no longer getting ill will because of the way they are. Instead, you look at them, uh, and you feel, wow, you know, you must have had a difficult day, or hard upbringing, or a difficult past life, or whatever it is, uh, you know, uh, and uh, so you have a sense of compassion for the person instead. Uh. It's so beautiful. It takes away the self-concern, the self-centeredness uh, that we all have to some extent, but it's nice to reduce that a little bit. Uh, and then you can be cool, yeah, even when speech outside is unpleasant. Uh, remember, one nice way of thinking about these things uh, is to think of the speech of other people like the wind in the trees, uh, yeah, or the sun outside. Uh, you cannot do anything about the sunshine. Uh, you cannot do anything about the wind in the trees. Uh, it's just nature. Uh, you don't normally allow yourself to get upset by these things. Uh, why? Because you know it's nature. Uh, speech is like that. It's nature. Uh, it's the conditioning of people coming out into society so that we have to hear it. Uh, and when you get that, uh, you let it be, just like you let the wind be, just like you let the trees be, the sun, the weather, and nature outside. Uh, we need to understand that people are more like nature, yeah, really, than anything else. Uh, and then you're on the right track. This is very much part of non-self. Yeah, we were uh, discussing non-self yesterday, and perhaps uh, some of that was a little bit too theoretical or too far away for to really make sense of. But this is a very simple and direct way of thinking about non-self. Yeah, the idea that. Uh, People speak because of conditions, uh, because of things coming together, not because they want to be evil. Yeah, yeah, I am evil. This is my nature, yeah, this is my core, kind of, yeah, I'm gonna, and I'm going to be bad as a consequence, you know. <laughs> it isn't like that. It's not a self doing these things, deciding to be bad. Sometimes it feels like it. It feels like the self is there, I want to be bad, but that's not really what's going on. It's conditioning, yeah, even though it feels like we are responsible, yeah. So this is a very simple application of non-self, and a very beautiful one here. Uh, thinking of people as just natural phenomena. And they put up with physical pain. Yeah, sharp, severe, acute, unpleasant, disagreeable, and life-threatening. Uh, someone was mentioning yesterday how they had a body that was no good. Uh, they're having sickness, uh, yeah. And uh, when you have a body that is no good and you have sickness, this is what you have to do. Sometimes you just have to put up with it. Uh, yeah, sometimes there's no, nothing you can do. Sometimes you use medication to the best of your ability. That doesn't even work sometimes. Uh, and so you, you just uh, accept it. Uh, because again, it's nature. Uh, it is no one's fault. Uh, it is not your fault that you are sick. Uh, yeah, It is not something that you have chosen. Uh, it is just uh, things happening to you. Uh, and um, sometimes you may think it is your fault. Uh, and when you think it is your fault, uh, you're just making it even worse. Uh, so you allow it to be here. You just are, okay, this is the body, this is the nature of things, and you try to go with the flow, try not to obstruct things and try to create something that cannot be created here. 
this is understanding what uh, you know the difference between those things that you can do something about uh, and those things you can't uh, and then accepting those things that you can't uh, and doing something with those things that you can uh. okay defilements given up by enduring and when you do that you don't get so upset so easily you don't uh, uh, you don't swear at the mosquitoes when they come into your room. Uh, you say, welcome mosquito, hooray. <laughs> and mosquitoes are just there trying to live their life in a good way. And then those defilements that come from not enduring, uh, they are given up. And uh, that is uh, the defilements to be given up through enduring. Yeah. So, um, there you are, endurance. And then we have this beautiful little verse from the Dhammapada, which many of you will know, yeah, because it's a very common verse in the Dhammapada, uh, 184. Uh, Patient endurance is the highest austerity. Uh, Nibbana is supreme, say the Buddhas. Uh, he is not a true monk or a nun who harms another, uh, nor a true renunciant uh, who oppresses others. Uh, especially the first line there is very famous, yeah. Uh, patient endurance is the highest uh, austerity here yeah. and um, it's interesting because uh, remember that this is a very in the context of ancient India this is a very important statement uh, because tapas tapas is the word that is used uh, uh, in tapo or tapas the word that is used for austerities in ancient India and the, the austerities that they would do would be like crazy things yeah i mean really crazy things. and you read the suttas and you see and you travel to india and you see people in india still doing exactly the same thing that they did two and a half thousand years ago and nothing has changed yeah they're still doing the same thing they still aren't enlightened because of that and uh, so these are so for that reason in that cultural context these things are very very important so the buddha is redefining the idea of austerity here you don't become enlightened by sitting on a rock in the middle of the sun in India in the middle of the day when it's 45 degrees, burning yourself up pretty much, standing on one leg at the same time while not eating and drinking, just wearing a loincloth. You know, these were kind of the things that the Jains would do at that time. The Jain ascetics were the toughest ascetics in ancient India and they still are to the present day. So, but the Buddha said that doesn't work. Yeah, this is what the first. Discourse, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta is all about finding the middle way, not trying to burn up your defilements through austerities. So he redefines it. The highest austerity, he says, instead is patient endurance. Yeah, when, because you have to be patient, you have to endure things. That obviously is a kind of austerity as well. And there is an important difference between these two kinds of austerities. Because the austerities of the Jains, it is an austerity by choice. Yeah, okay, I'm going to stand on one leg for a while, and then afterwards I'm going to have a nice meal. Yeah, And this is one of the ways the Buddha criticized these people. He said, oh yeah, they, they are ascetics for a few years, yeah, and they become really thin. And then they give up their ascetism, they go back to ordinary life, and then again become fat again. Yeah, so they go from thin to fat, fat to gain. What is that called in Buddhism? It's called uh, the body increasing and the body diminishing here. Yeah. That's what he call, That's what he says. It is a uh, <laughs> bit of a kind of yeah. So and so you, it's a choice that you make. But patient endurance of all of these things in the world is not really a choice. It's something that you have to do. Yeah, when the body doesn't work, the speech is wrong. 
He has no choice anymore. You have to endure. And because it isn't a choice, in some ways it's more difficult. We can all choose pain for a short period of time because we know, we feel like we are in control. Choice is like being in control. But when you're not in control, often it's more difficult to endure. So patient endurance is to know when to endure, even if you're not in control, even when the world is in control, which is most of the time, yeah, if, if not all the time. Yeah? So patient endurance is the highest austerity. Yeah? Forget about all the other stuff. Don't add pain. There's enough pain in the world as there is. Uh, we don't need to make it worse. Uh. Nibbana, yeah, extinguishment is supreme, say the Buddhas. Uh. one of those really interesting things extinguishment is supreme extinguishment is supreme anyway let's let's leave that for now just kind of keep that at the back of your mind it's a nice one here he is not a true monk or nun or you could say even the good layperson upasaka upasaka yeah for those who don't word i use this word upasaka upasaka a lot this is like a, a lay follower male and female lay followers in buddhism who harms another. Yeah, One of the crucial, critical ideas of what it means to be a monastic or to be a spiritual person, that you don't harm anyone. Uh, one of the core things. Uh, yeah, There's a nice sutta in the Anguttara 4, which lists the four things that are uh, what it means to be a truly spiritual person. Uh, and that is uh, non-ill will, yeah, which is like harming, so no ill will. Uh, uh, non Desire, yeah, is the other one. And then sati, mindfulness, and samadhi are the other ones. Uh, sati being mindfulness, samadhi being deep meditation. Uh, I think that's what it is. I haven't read that sutta for a long time, but I th- that's, that's what comes to mind now. I could be, I'm pretty sure that's correct. But uh, yeah. So harming another is uh, one of the kind of core things that uh, Buddhism is not about. It's about being gentle. Uh, about being kind, about uh, looking after life, having compassion rather than being harsh. You cannot harm and oppress others. Uh, There's a nice little summary there of the Dhamma in some ways. Uh, Dhammapada 184. Uh, I would recommend you, if you enjoy these little verses, uh, uh, to really have a look at the Dhammapada. Yeah? Have it on your a bedside table at night and before you go to bed maybe if you're a little bit restless you want to calm down read a couple of verses in there and kind of reflect on those as you drift to sleep that's not that's a pretty way of going pretty nice way of going to sleep yeah taking the dhamma with you into the dreams and maybe you have some really nice dreams as a consequence or no dreams that's often the best thing here and then you wake up in the morning full of energy yeah yeah ready for the day ready to do all the right things Okay, so um, there you are. That's a very short one on defilements given up by enduring here. Now we come to the next one. I told you it's going to go fast. This is the middle one here. The next one is the defilements to be given up by avoiding here. Yeah, sometimes we just avoid things, and this is what this is about. So let's see what this says. And uh, so here. The Buddha says the following, what are the defilements that should be given up by avoiding here? Take a mendicant who, reflecting properly, yeah, avoids a wild elephant. 
a wild horse, a wild ox, a wild dog, a snake, a stump, a thorny ground, a pit, a cliff, a swamp, a sewer. <laughs> Reflecting properly, they avoid sitting on inappropriate seats, walking in inappropriate neighborhoods, and mixing with bad friends. Whatever sensible spiritual companions would believe to be a bad setting. For the distressing and feverish defilements that might arise in someone who lives without avoiding these things do not arise when they are avoided. These are called the defilements that should be given up by avoiding. So let's just stay with that a little bit. So um, this is quite, this is kind of a... uh, it's kind of strange, yeah. Well, first of all, again, reflecting properly, just like before, you reflect carefully so that you, uh, uh, you know, you are, you are aware of what you're doing, and it's kind of strange, isn't it? You avoid a wild elephant. Well, of course, you avoid a wild elephant, you <laughs> or a snake. You don't really, you know, you you are careful with these things, and uh, I suppose that i'm not sure exactly why it's put in there it seems kind of obvious but maybe it is because some people are just especially if you are a monk maybe maybe you're supposed to be tough you're supposed to deal with all kinds of things and sometimes you kind of lose your common sense a little bit and we certainly know about those kind of monks that don't lost their common sense and do things that are really detrimental so uh, you you are wise about things you don't put yourself into dangerous situations i guess that is the point here you don't try to be overly tough and overly kind of uh, the super super monk by the way they had used to have a cartoon in thailand called super monk are you aware of that uh, maybe not uh, yeah, that's super monk it's, it's like superman he flies through the air yeah and he kind of helps people and he sorts things out uh, just like superman but it was super monk so uh, so you don't try to be super monk you try to be just you, you kind of know your limitations uh, and you you don't do silly things uh, it is not about enduring unnecessarily. That's not what the spiritual path is about. And so I, I, I'm not sure why it is there. Maybe it is there to kind of fill in a little bit because it's very short if you only have the last three. You seem to have a... Maybe metaphorically too. Uh, it's yeah. So, yeah. So, certainly, general a general kind of idea of avoiding bad stuff. I think that's probably true. That it's kind of that list can probably be expanded a lot. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, that, so the, the, the first part there is pretty obvious, but the next part is really the interesting one. Yeah, uh, where you uh, avoid sitting on inappropriate seats. Yeah, this is then really mentioned to mendicants, and this what this means. It doesn't mean that you kind of sit on a nice throne or anything like that, which is inappropriate for a monk. And it might mean that as well, but it really means that you're sitting with the right kind of people. Yeah, you're not sitting on a bench with a with a woman next to you. You know, just the two of you, for example, that kind of thing. Or if you are a nun next to a man, you you kind of you have you're sensible. I mean. Sometimes that can be bad for many reasons. Uh, one thing is that uh, it tends to give rise to kind of defilements and unwholesome qualities, especially in the long run if you keep on doing it. Uh, 
but also it has a sense of giving a bad reputation to you. Yeah, even if you don't have any defilements, even if you are an arahant, uh, still this doesn't kind of it's not a good idea, not a good look to hang around with women all the time. Uh, kind of gives the wrong impression to people. So, uh, so this is what means by hanging out on the wrong kind of seats, or. Not just not just women, yeah, or for nuns, men, but also people of this bad repute, like gangsters. You don't hang out too much with gangsters, uh, you know. Again, it gives the wrong idea when if you, if you do that. Uh, so you, um, this is the idea of kind of the right kind of seats. Asana is the the Pali word for this. Uh, it's actually quite simple and straightforward, uh, but uh, sometimes you need to point out the obvious things in in the world. Uh, and this is true for lay people as well. Yeah, you you kind of hang out with the right kind of sitting sitting in the right place, sitting in the uh, in the hall here. Yeah, on the floor or on a seat. Uh, and if you feel your knees are getting a bit stuffed by sitting on the floor, then you take a chair instead. That's also the right asana. Walking in inappropriate neighborhoods. Yeah, same thing again. Almost exactly the same idea. Even when you walk for arms, you don't walk into the red light district for arms necessarily. Uh, or you, you know, you don't go to the the casino. I was a cas- at a casino once as a monk. <laughs> it was very interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go there to game, of course, obviously not. But uh, I happened to be in Macau, Macau, next to Hong Kong. Yeah, and I. Because my parents were kind of, they wanted to take me somewhere. They came to Australia. This was many years ago while they're still traveling around the world. And so they said, so we were in Hong Kong and said, oh, let's go over to Macau. We've never been to Macau before. It's kind of interesting place yeah, with old kind of Portuguese architecture. But when we got there, the first thing we saw was the casino. It was a brand new casino. So we said, okay, let's, have, let's check out the casino. <laughs> So we went to the casino, and then the, the kind of the people saw me in the door, and they kind of almost freaked out. They realized that this person is not supposed to be in the casino, and they say that's a very bad omen, yeah, for the casino. When the monk comes into the casino, it's the worst thing that can possibly happen is a monk coming in there. So I walked in, and as soon as I walked in, they kind of ushered me through these back routes, yeah. They were not going to allow me to kind of come in the ordinary way, which was good because otherwise you have to walk through the gaming floor. It's the only way to get in. So I, I walked the back route, some kind of corridors up and down and through with my parents. And we ended up kind of inside the casino, in the restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, I don't know about you, but if you've been to a casino, I, I feel a very kind of oppressive atmosphere in the casino. Uh, people just seem generally not very happy <laughs> in casinos. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of a, a slightly addicted, addictive atmosphere when you're there. Yeah, The lighting is always set on evening. We were there in the morning. There was evening light inside. Yeah? So you always have this, because evening is when you go to the casino yeah, to play. So you have this kind of eternal uh, pl- playtime uh, atmosphere inside. Uh. So uh, I don't know, it was very unpleasant. And you realize why it matters. Uh, yeah, we shouldn't go to these places because they actually drag you down. Uh, the lower your energy, the lower the positive energy inside. You are affected by external things. Uh, we say that places have an energy, and I think it's true. We are affected by external things in this life. Uh, yeah, And so we need to go to places with a good energy, uh, like the BSV. Uh, yeah, when you sit in here, it's really nice. Good company, a good feeling, and everyone is kind of lifting, lifting each other up in a positive sense. 
What a wonderful thing that is. Uh, so you hang out in the good neighborhoods. Uh, East Melbourne is a good neighborhood. Uh, at least this part of, is there any bad neighborhoods in, in East? No, East Melbourne is, is only just a good neighborhood. Yeah, that's my feeling. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so there you are. So this, this matters. So you just think, it's pretty logical. You know what are the good and bad neighborhoods. Yeah, so you do the right thing and you stay in the right place. So and then the last one, which is the most important of all, because it brings all of these things together. Yeah, you avoid mixing with bad friends. Bad friends in Pali, Papa Mitta. Papa is bad or evil. Mitta is a friend. Yeah, so you avoid bad friends. In other words, but actually, you don't just avoid bad friends. You hang out with good friends, the Kalyana Mitta, instead. This is what this is about, because we are affected by the things around us. And then it says this nice phrase at the end, uh, whatever a sensible spiritual companion would believe to be a bad setting. Yeah? Whatever a sensible spiritual pa companion would think is bad, yeah? that you avoid. Uh, who are these sensual, sensible, <laughs> sensible spiritual companions? Uh, well, number one is the Buddha. Yeah? Or, or you can say a, a good monk or nun, someone who's practicing really well, or a good layperson, yeah? whoever it is. Uh, so what would the Buddha say? So ask yourself that. It's a good question to ask. What would the Buddha say in this particular case? And just by asking yourself that question, you have some idea what is appropriate. What would the Buddha do now? When your friend says, yeah, come to the casino, it can't hurt you. You know, you don't have to play, just watch, you know, and hang out with your mates. And that's Mara talking. Yeah, would the Buddha go? Probably not. So it can be very handy to just use that as your as a kind of guidance in your life. What would a Buddha do in this case? What would uh, Ajahn Brahm do? What would uh, you know anyone who you take as your teacher, anyone who is a, an impressive kind of spiritual practitioner? It's a very, and again, a very useful standard to have in your life. And then when you avoid all of that, avoid mixing with bad friends, but mixing with good friends instead, then this bad defilement stop. So let's have a little bit more look at the idea of good spiritual friendship because it's such an important one. And this next sutta is also a little bit about that. This is a sutta which, again, is found in the Devata Sangyutta. And so Devata means like spiritual beings, yeah, gods, if you like, in Pali. So these are these short suttas with verses and, and with gods. And this talks about the power of having spiritual, good spiritual friendship, yeah, how we are conditioned by this. So um, this is how it goes. That's how I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's monastery. Then, when the night had advanced, a number of devatas belonging to the Satullapa host, Satullapa host, okay, of stunning beauty illuminating the entire Jeta's grove, uh, approached the Blessed One, uh, the Buddha. Having approached, they paid homage to the Buddha and stood to one side. Then one Devata, standing to one side, recited this verse in the presence of the Buddha. One should associate only with the good. With the good, one should be intimate. These are the Kalyanamittas, yeah? Having learned the true Dhamma, the Saddhamma of the good, 
one becomes better, never worse. And then five other devatas in turn recited their verses in the presence of the Blessed One. And each one recites exactly the same verse, only the last line is different. Yes, that's why I've only retained the last line there. So one should associate only with the good. With the good, one should be intimate. Having learned the true Dhamma of the good, wisdom is gained, but not from others, yeah, not from those who are not good. And then the same thing again, one does not sorrow in the midst of sorrow. In other words, other people sorrowing. One shines amidst one's relations. Beings fare on to a good destination. Beings abide comfortably. These are all the results of having good friends. Yeah, kalanamitas. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, so e- e- basically what it is saying is that everything good in the world, uh, yeah, you could, you could expand that list forever. Uh, some of the most important ones there is that wisdom is gained. Yeah, you become better and never worse. Uh, but you could expand that list on indefinitely uh, because all true good things, really good things, uh, come from good friendship, uh, kalyanamittas, uh, headed by the Buddha and then everyone else coming after that. Uh, you could kind of keep on adding to that. But then another devata said to the Buddha, which one, blessed one, which one of us has spoken well? And then the Buddha says again, you have all spoken well in your own way, but listen to me too. One should associate only with the good. With the good, one should be intimate. Having learned the true Dhamma of the good, one is released from all suffering here. Yeah. This is how the Buddha tends to speak, yeah, the highest goal in mind. Uh, we talked about before Nibbana is supreme because Nibbana is equivalent to being released from all suffering here. Yeah. And um, it, this is such an important thing and I think you cannot really overestimate the idea of the importance of hanging out with the right people. Uh, yeah, good companionship, uh, good friendship is so fundamental to any kind of progress on the spiritual path. Uh, and uh, I usually, on all of, all of these retreats, I include uh, this beautiful sutta found in a couple of places. Uh, I think in the um, Magga Sangyutta and also in the Nidana, the Mahanidana Sutta, I think. Uh, um, and this is that beautiful sutta which many of you will know. Uh, yeah, And I will just say it again because some of you probably don't know it, those of you who are more new to this. Uh, and this is the sutta with Venerable Ananda. Venerable Ananda is the attendant of the Buddha, been the attendant of the Buddha for a long time. And he goes to the Buddha and he says to the Buddha, uh, Master, yeah, Venerable Sir, uh, it seems to me spiritual companionship, good spiritual friendship is so important that it is half of the spiritual life. So it's kind of what do you mean? What do you mean half of the spiritual life? Yeah, surely you are exaggerating. Yeah, it can't possibly be half. If you look at the noble eightfold path, yeah, I mean it doesn't even feature on the noble eightfold path. So how can it be half the spiritual life? Probably it's more like ten percent. Yeah, he's probably he probably doesn't get it. He's not the Buddha. He's just venerable Ananda. He doesn't really understand about this. So probably an exaggeration. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. And then, of course, the conversation carries on. And then the Buddha says to Venerable Ananda, do not say so, Ananda, do not say so. Good companionship is 100% of the spiritual life. 
hundred percent. And um, you know, when you read that the first time, you think, surely this must be an exaggeration. The Buddha is exag exaggerating for effect to make it clear that is very important. But it cannot possibly be a hundred percent. What about all the rest that we have to do? You cannot just hang out with the good friends and kind of uh, have a good time. Surely that's not enough. But that's what the Buddha is saying. Yeah. How can we understand this? Well, first thing to understand, the Buddha doesn't usually exaggerate. Uh, he says it the way it is. This is kind of the point of being a Buddha. He wants to be honest, direct with us, say things through the eyes. There must be a meaning here. Uh, what is that meaning? Uh, and that meaning, the more you understand about the Dhamma, you start to understand that without uh, the word of another, uh, without that input from someone else who already understands and sees things clearly, uh, the Buddha is considered the eye of the world because he sees thirst first and then passes on his insight to others afterwards. Without that, there is no beginning of the spiritual life. Yeah? It doesn't even start. You need someone who has some insight to give you that information. And the reason is that the insight on the Buddhist path is so profound and it's so different from what we are used to. We are deluded. We can't even, the idea of seeing non-self is impossible without some kind of spiritual guidance. Almost impossible, not quite, because there are Buddhas arising in the world, but very close to impossible. So for this reason, the foundation stone is always the Kalyanamitta, headed by the Buddha. This is the beginning. Without that, there is no spiritual life. So in that sense, it is 100%. Yeah? That there isn't, all the other stuff doesn't exist without that beginning point. And there are some beautiful suttas that make this point very clear. Uh, the suttas where uh, it, it starts off by, you know, how do you reach uh, vimut, vidja vimutti? Uh, vidja is a... Uh, uh, the kind of the insight, if you like. Vimutti is liberation. How do you reach insight and liberation on the Buddhist path? This refers to the highest insight on the path, yeah, arahanship. How do you get there? And then it takes you back. It says, well, to get that, you have to have the seven factors of awakening, which we will come to soon. Yeah? So that's kind of exciting. Yeah? These are the factors that lead to awakening. Yeah? What, what, and then it goes step by step, causality backwards. What are the things that lead to the seven factors of awakening? The four satipatthanas, the four mindfulness meditations. Yeah, what leads to that? Giving up the five, sorry, giving up the bad kind of conduct. Yeah. So in other words, good conduct leads to that. And it goes back and back and back through ten steps. And the root thing that gives rise to liberation, according to this sequence, is. Kalyanamitta, yeah, Sapurisa Sangsevo, it is called there. Sapurisa is the good people. Sangseva means to hang out with, associate with. Yeah, that's what it means. It is the foundation of this path. And um, this is uh, comes from this idea of non-self. I always like to use the simile of a ship or a boat on the ocean. Yeah, if you are a ship on the ocean, but you are a ship without a rudder without a sail, without oars, without an engine. You're just a hull, yeah? Just a hull of the ship, uh, empty hull, and you are kind of, that's, that's who you are. Uh, well, because there is no rudder, because there's no steering mechanism in the ship, uh, you are entirely dependent on the external conditions uh, for where you are going. Uh. If the wind comes from the south, you go to the north. Uh. The wind comes from the east, you go to the west. If the current drifts you from the north, then the current takes you to the south. And the sum total of these conditions will decide which direction you go. 
And if Nibbana is in the east, but you, the wind comes from the east, well, you're, not, you're going to go away from Nibbana because the conditioning is wrong here. So you have to get the right conditioning here. And that conditioning is the conditioning of the Buddha. We are all like ships on the ocean uh, without a steering mechanism. This is kind of the idea of non-self. Yeah? We are drifting around depending on the conditions, uh, how we were brought up, uh, how we were taught, how we lived in our past lives. Uh, that is what we are now. Our personality is the sum of those things and nothing apart from that. Uh, so we are trapped in our personalities. Uh, I love that idea of being trapped in your personality because it's so counterintuitive, yeah? We are proud of my personality. Yeah, I, this is my personality, yeah. I've done these kind of things, I've done really well. Yeah, me, yeah. I'm different, yeah, no one is like me. I'm special. You're not, you're not special, you're just like everyone else, yeah. <laughs> kind of this idea of celebrating individuality, I think is a massive delusion in our society. We're not special. We're just conditioned into this thing. Yeah? Yeah, all that depends on the sense of self, which actually is an illusion according to Buddhism. Yeah? So that is what we are. So we are just drifting around depending on cause and conditions. And one day, one of the conditions that come into our life uh, is the conditioning of a spiritual master like the Buddha. And he tells you, actually, think carefully about this. Maybe you got this wrong. Yeah? And then he tells you a few simple truths, yeah, and you think, yeah, you have a point, because we all have that deeply somewhere hidden inside of us, a lot of these things we know already, yeah, especially things like kindness works. Most people know that, not everyone. Some people may be so deluded they can't even see that. A lot of people know that. And then he says, well, if you act in this way, you become more peaceful, yeah. And if you reduce your defilements, you get more clarity. It makes sense, yeah? If you are less anger, angry, you have more clarity. If you have less desires, you have more clarity. It makes sense once you see, once you start to reflect on these things. And then you gain confidence in this path. And then it takes you to places you never even dreamt of were possible. With insights, with peace upon peace upon peace, which is so profound and so special that it blows your mind after a while, quite literally, yeah? <laughs> blows your mind literally. This is kind of the endpoint of this path. So this is where, this is why this is so important. This is why this is the foundation of the very spiritual life, why it is a hundred percent of the spiritual life, and why when you associate with the good, yeah, it pushes you, it leads you in the right direction all the time, eventually taking you to Nibbana, but actually giving rise to all the good things in the world, hanging out with the right people. So what does this mean in practice? Well, what it means in practice is that we should spend a lot of time with the right people and very little time with the wrong people. Why? Because we are conditioned. Don't fall for the trap to think that, yeah, I am strong, I know how to deal with all the bad people. You are not. Yeah, We're all vulnerable, we're all conditioned, we're all going to be dragged in the wrong direction if we hang out too much with the wrong people. That's this, this is the problem. The more time we hang out with the right people, the more we're going to be conditioned in the right way. That's kind of what this is all about. So we spend time in the right way. Whenever you need a bit of top-up, you go and listen to a Dhamma discourse. Whenever you need some encouragement, you go and ask a question of someone who you are inspired by, someone you trust. And in this way, you build these things up. You never forget about the Dhamma. Maybe sometimes you even dare to enter into the suttas yourself and read the sutta. I know people are sometimes afraid of the suttas. Oh, so difficult, so hard to understand. Uh, try 
Ajahn Sujato's translations, they are quite accessible here. Uh, compared to on suttacentral.net. Uh, yeah, and try those out. Maybe you, you will get inspired by those suttas. Uh, and if you don't, it's okay. You don't have to, uh, but test it out. And gradually, gradually, you build up. Uh, always coming back to the Dhamma, always finding inspiration in the right place, understanding the importance uh, of that conditioning, uh, because we are ultimately entirely conditioned. Uh. So, there you are. That is the uh, uh, things to be, defilements to be given up by avoiding uh, and by defilements to be uh, given up by hanging out with the right people. And now we only have two defilements left. And uh, we're going to look at those two and these are very interesting, the last two, uh, and they're going to take a lot of time. They will easily take the rest of this retreat uh, just to look at the last two defilements. Uh, so uh, that's what's going to be going to start uh, this afternoon. In the meantime, enjoy your lunch, have a nice time, and we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock. Yeah.